is lawfare, no bull. Yesterday, January 11th, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing on the threat of domestic terrorism one year after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The committee heard testimony from Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General in the National Security Division of the Department of Justice, and Jill Sanborn, Executive Assistant Director of the National Security Branch of the FBI. We've cut out the repetition and grandstanding to give you just the questions and answers you need. This hearing of the Senate Judiciary Committee will come to order. I first held a hearing on domestic terrorism threat in 2012, 10 years ago, after a white supremacist murdered seven Sikh worshipers in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. Today, 10 years later, the threat is worse. That's why I've convened the Senate Judiciary Committee's first hearing of this year to consider this subject. The American people will have an opportunity to learn more about the Justice Department's investigation into one of the worst domestic terrorism attacks in years, the January 6th insurrection on the Capitol. I'd like to start with a video on the aftermath of January 6th and the threat of domestic terrorism in America. January 6th was a disgrace. There's no question. President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. Violence is never a legitimate form of protest. The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. A year after January 6th, are the guardrails that protect democracy real or illusionary? January 6th laid bare the threat of white nationalism and served as a wake-up call to the intelligence community and the country. January 6th is a symptom of a deeper problem. Across the country, election officials and election workers, airline flight crews, school personnel, journalists, U.S. senators and representatives, and judges, prosecutors, and police officers have been threatened and or attacked. Federal prosecutors have charged a member of the Boogaloo Boys and fired 13 rounds into the police department's third precinct building. According to an unclassified summary of the March intelligence assessment, the two most lethal elements of the domestic violence extremist threat are racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists. Proud Boys coordinating, instigating, and leading some of the most pivotal moments of the rush into the historic building. Oath keepers in battle gear in a stacked military formation, methodically working through the crowd, up the Capitol steps. The Department of Homeland Security itself in their annual threat assessment in October 2020 declared domestic violent extremism in general and white supremacist extremism in particular to be the most persistent and lethal threat facing the nation. Acts of violence like the El Paso shooting or the Oklahoma City bombing are meant to be political and ideological actions that bring other activists into the movement. I think it's time to take a hard look at where, where we're putting our resources. We can never again allow democracy to be put in peril. Steps should be taken to prevent such an attack on our democracy ever happening again. Those of us who were here will never forget the horrifying images of January 6, 2021. A noose and gallows erected on the Capitol lawn, rioters attacking police officers with flagpoles bearing the American flag, a Confederate battle flag, Confederate battle flag waving in the temple of our democracy, a sight 
unimaginable even during the darkest days of the Civil War. The insurrection should be a wake-up call, a reminder that America is still confronted with the age-old menace that's taken on a new life in the 21st century. Terror from white supremacists, militia members, and other extremists who use violence to further their twisted agenda. Last March, FBI Director Ray told this committee that the threat of domestic terrorism is, quote, metastasizing across the country and not going away anytime soon. In the hours immediately following the insurrection, I was hopeful. When the mob had dispersed and the Senate returned to the Capitol to certify the results of the 2020 election, we, Republicans and Democrats alike, were united. We were determined to show that mob that they had lost and democracy had won. All of us were well aware of who was behind the insurrection. As we saw in the video, Republican congressional leaders like Senator McConnell and Congressman McCarthy joined Democrats in acknowledging that President Trump was, quote, practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of that day. But days turned into weeks, and this solid bipartisan record rhetoric was shaken. Our efforts to investigate the insurrection and the former president's attempts to overturn the election were stonewalled. Last May, last May, Senate Republicans filibustered a plan to create an independent bipartisan commission to investigate what happened on January 6th and to make sure it never happened again. And a number of elected Republicans who either refused to repudiate the big lie or have outright endorsed it is growing. Whether the boosters of the big lie know it or not, they're playing with fire. By supporting the false narrative that the 2020 election was somehow stolen or rigged, they have rationalized the worst assault on our capital since the War of 1812. And in turn, they are normalizing the use of violence to achieve political goals. The intelligence community warns us, narratives of fraud in the recent general election will almost certainly spur domestic violent extremists to try to engage in violence. Congress, this is how democracies die. Today, more than half of Republican voters, more than half, believe the insurrectionists were, quote, protecting democracy. In a recent study from the University of Chicago, Professor Robert Pape found that nearly one in 10 Americans believe that, quote, the use of force is justified to restore John Donald J. Trump to the presidency, one in 10. These radical viewpoints don't appear out of thin air. Donald Trump continues to spew these divisive, dangerous ideas from his exile in Mar-a-Lago. And his calls have been echoed by a vocal faction of Republican lawmakers, lawmakers who are actively encouraging their supporters to treat political opponents as hostile adversaries. Other Republican lawmakers have remained silent, refusing to condemn them. For example, last year, a Republican congressman tweeted out an animated video showing himself murdering one of his Democratic colleagues. Another House Republican has expressed support for a, quote, national divorce, national divorce between red and blue states. I might remind this congressman that the last national divorce, our civil war, cost more American lives than any conflict before or since. Some may wave this incendiary rhetoric off as political bluster or just a bad joke, but the reality is more troubling. These tacit and even explicit endorsements of violence are taking a tragic toll. Over the past two years, our nation's public servants have faced a wave of violence, 
One survey found that nearly one in five local elected officials has been threatened with violence because of their work in the 2020 election cycle. We've seen an appalling rise in violent outbursts on airplanes, in school board meetings, and in other spheres of public life. We've seen unacceptable, even deadly cases of violence towards law enforcement officers. Don't tell me that you stand for law and order and turn your back on the threats that law enforcement officers are facing every single day. So at the outset of today's hearing, I'd like to respectfully request that every member of this committee use this hearing to explicitly condemn the use or threat of violence to advance political goals. It's a simple request, but sadly a necessary one. This committee should speak with a unified voice in saying violence is unacceptable. This is not an issue of where you stand on the political spectrum. Violent extremism exists on both ends, and whether an act of violence is being committed by a white supremacist in the Capitol or a far-left extremist at a riot in Portland, it is unacceptable and inexcusable, period. We also need to understand the nature of the threat. As senior law enforcement and intelligence officials have warned us, the biggest domestic terrorism threat today stems from white supremacists and violent militia extremists, some of whom are working in America to topple our democracy. For them, January 6th was a test run, and in the year following the insurrection, there have been far too many instances of violent extremism. For example, last month, one domestic terrorist who espoused a variety of far-right fringe and misogynistic views on social media committed a mass shooting in Colorado. The attacker had been on the radar, radar of local law enforcement for years, even listed the names of his victims in self-published books, but unfortunately no action was taken. He ended up killing five people. Before he had a chance to kill more, a heroic police officer, Agent Ashley Ferris, came to the rescue. She arrived on the scene and ordered the attacker to drop his, lesson, his weapon. He responded by shooting her in the stomach. While wounded and bleeding on the ground, Agent Ferris returned fire and brought the attack to an end. Officers like Agent Ferris put their lives on the line every day to defend us. And as we saw on January 6th at the Capitol and in the streets of American cities in 2020, they are too often themselves the target of violent extremism. They cannot take on the biggest threat in our national security alone. They need our help at the federal level analyzing and acting on intelligence on domestic terror sources. That's why I proposed the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, introduced it in 2017. It ensures state and local law enforcement have the resources and data to prevent acts of domestic terror and white supremacist violence, make sure that law enforcement officials have the resources they need. During today's hearings, I hope we'll learn what steps the Justice Department and FBI are taking keep our communities, our country, and officers like Agent Ferret safe. I hope this committee will be unequivocal, unequivocal in condemning violence wherever it's source on the political spectrum. No more cowering before any mob. Our democracy is in the crosshairs of domestic terrorism. It's time to take a stand. The only way to prevent a recurrence of a deadly insurrection like January 6th is by joining together in defense of our Constitution and the rule of law. With that, I'll turn to my friend, Ranking Member Chuck Grassley, for his opening statement. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. A year ago, I gave a speech on the Senate floor. In that speech, I asked all my colleagues to join me in condemning all 
political violence. That obviously included the terrible attack on the Capitol, but it also referred to nearly 600 riots that came before January 6th violence. And I learned something from my colleagues. I have a video I'd like to have you watch. I, I want to be clear in how I characterize this. This is a, mostly a protest. It is not, generally speaking, unruly. Peaceful protest. <laughs> These uh, anti-police riots rocked our nation for seven full months, just like the January 6th assault on the Capitol rocked the nation. The riots caused terrible damage. You saw on the video, $2 million worth. You saw on the video, hundreds of people were charged federally. The FBI opened over 500 domestic terrorism investigations. Over 14,000 were arrested by the states in just the first few weeks. At least 25 died. 2,000 police officers were injured. This included well over 100 officers defending the federal courthouse in Portland. It included 60 Secret Service officers defending the White House. The Judicial Conference reported that 50 federal courthouses were damaged during this time. Throughout a time that was incredibly difficult for our police officers, we had some Democrats pile on. They called police things like stormtroopers. To this day, attacks continue on good rumors of the police or the good names of police 
who dealt with an impossible situation in the 100-night siege on Portland Courthouse, is it any wonder then that when it came time to secure the Capitol on January 6th, some were too concerned about optics or about the image of National Guardsmen at the Capitol. Mayor Bowser of D.C. even said that when federal police court, like those police forces, like those that came to defend the Portland current courthouse, that they wouldn't be welcome here. From the time anti-police riots broke out over 18 months ago, the police have retreated from the streets, and the results have been very predictable. Beginning June 2020, our country has experienced an unprecedented 30% hike uh, in murders. That spike has continued all the way to the present day. In 2021, more than a dozen cities set all-time homicide records. Street crime, from assaults to carjacking, uh, to also what we call flash mob-style smash-and-grab robberies, have become a way of life in many cities. You saw it just last night in San Jose, California, on television, as an example. New York Mayor Eric Adams has announced he will revive a plainclothes anti-crime unit to combat the violence. San Francisco Mayor London Breed has declared a state of emergency over crime in her cities. Mayor Lightfoot has asked for federal resources to help fight crime in Chicago. Sadly, anti-police sentiment extends to the rise of murder of police. Dozens were killed in 2021. FBI analysis showed that many of them were targeted because they were just simply police officers, not because of any private contract contact with an attacker. The Federal Order Fraternal Order of Police. That data shows that ambush attacks on officers have been more than doubled. The police aren't just heroes because of January 6th when they defended us here at the Capitol. These police officers, federal, state, local, are heroes all the time. If we don't treat them as heroes, I fear the violent crime and attacks on police officers will only get worse. It won't get any better. I started by saying that I gave a speech a year ago asking my colleagues to join me in condemning all political violence. I heard Senator Durbin say exactly that same thing in his opening remarks today. I'm sorry to say that the situation hasn't gotten worse. The situation has gotten worse since I gave my speech. It has not gotten better. Last summer, President Biden released a domestic terrorism strategy that made no mention whatsoever 
of the 2020 riots, though they comprise about a fifth to a quarter of the FBI's current domestic terrorism cases. There was almost no mention of left-wing terrorism at all. Thanks, Senator Urban, for mentioning left-wing terrorism. Further, the President's strategy suggested that partisan policies of gun control and teaching critical race theory are part of the solution. Using violent attacks to try to advance unrelated policy goals is a shameful tactic. It undermines what our law enforcement officers are trying to do to stem the violence in this country. It undermines the universal nonpartisan indictment that we should all bring to bear against extremist violence, right or left. There can't be exceptions. That means that we have to deal with the 2020 riots and January 6th when we look over FBI domestic terrorism programs. We in Congress have an oversight role to perform. This committee is doing that today. And there is room for improvement, needed room for improvement. Director Ray, over 10 months ago, testified to us that there were weaknesses in the left-wing domestic terrorism program that had prevented the FBI from getting the visibility they needed into the 2020 riots. From that time to now, we have received next to no information in response to our inquiries about how the FBI intends to cure those deficiencies. The time has come to change that. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and my colleagues. Thanks, Senator Grassley. Today we welcome Assistant Attorney General Matthew Olson and FBI Executive Assistant Director Jill Sanborn to testify before the committee. They will each have five minutes for opening statements, then rounds of questions, where senators will have five minutes as well. So I ask uh, remotely, virtually, if Mr. Olson and Ms. Sandberg, uh, Sanborn would please stand to be sworn in. Thank you, Chairman Durbin, Grassley, members of the committee. I appreciate this opportunity uh, to testify today about the work of the Department of Justice. The threat posed by domestic terrorism is on the rise. The number of FBI investigations over the past two years since March 2020 has more than doubled. Communities across the country have been the victims of acts of domestic terror and hate in recent years. In El Paso, 23 people, most of whom were Latino, were killed at a shopping center. In Pittsburgh, 11 worshipers were killed at their synagogue. In Alexandria, Virginia, a lone gunman wounded four people at a congressional baseball practice. And in Charleston, nine people were killed by white supremacists in their church. Last week, we marked the one-year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol on January 6th. In the wake of that attack, the Department of Justice has undertaken an, un an, an effort unprecedented in its scope and complexity to hold accountable all of those who engage in criminal acts. As the, as the Attorney General uh, testified or discussed last week, we have arrest, arrested and charged more than 725 individuals 
for their roles uh, in that attack, including more than 325 defendants charged with felonies. We continue to methodically gather and review the evidence, and we will follow the facts wherever they lead. The attacks in recent years underscore the threat that domestic terrorism continues to pose to our citizens, to law enforcement officers, to public officials, and to our democratic institutions. Based on the assessment of the intelligence community, we face an elevated threat from domestic violent extremists. That is, individuals in the United States who seek to commit violent criminal acts in furtherance of domestic, social, or political goals. Domestic violent extremists are often motivated by a mix of ideologies and personal grievances. We've seen a growing threat from those who are motivated by racial animus, as well as those who ascribe to extremist, anti-government, and anti-authority ideologies. At the same time, we remain vigilant to the persistent and dynamic threat from international terrorist groups, such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. As the Attorney General has observed, combating the threat of domestic terrorism has been a core mission for the Department of Justice since its founding more than 150 years ago, when the newly formed department pursued the KKK to protect the rights of black Americans under the Constitution. Today, investigating and prosecuting domestic violent extremists is one of our top priorities. On the front lines of this effort are our 94 United States Attorney's Offices. These federal prosecutors work in close partnership with the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which have the lead in all terrorism investigations. At Maine Justice, the National Security Division, which I lead, was created in 2006 to integrate the department's national security work across the country. In any case with a nexus to domestic terrorism, we provide support to manage, coordinate, and assist in those prosecutions. Within the National Security Division, we have a team of counterterrorism attorneys, all of whom are equipped to work on both domestic and international terrorism prosecutions. In addition, I've decided to establish a domestic terrorism unit to augment our existing approach. This group of dedicated attorneys will focus on the domestic terrorism threat, helping to ensure that these cases are handled properly and effectively coordinated across the Department of Justice and across the country. The National Security Division also works closely with other components of DOJ, especially the Civil Rights Division, which has led the prosecution of some of the most heinous attacks in recent years under our federal hate crime statutes. Similar to our efforts to combat international terrorism, the department uses all of the legal tools in our arsenal to prevent, disrupt, and prosecute acts of domestic terrorism. And in cases where state charges are more appropriate, we support our state and local law enforcement partners. While there is no single federal crime that's labeled domestic terrorism, the criminal code does define domestic terrorism, and this definition provides us with expanded authorities, including enhanced sentencing for terrorism offenses. Finally, in all of our efforts to combat domestic terrorism, the Justice Department is bound by our commitment to protecting civil liberties and our duty to ensure equal and impartial justice. We prosecute individuals for engaging in violent behavior, not for their beliefs or associations. But we will not hesitate to prosecute those who commit acts of violence 
in violation of the federal law. I appreciate the opportunity to discuss these issues with you today, and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Olson. Ms. Sanborn, you may proceed. I am honored to be here with you today representing the men and women of the FBI. I always enjoy being back in front of the Senate where I began my career in public service as a Senate page many years ago. I appreciate the opportunity to be with you to discuss the current domestic threat landscape and our efforts to advance our domestic terrorism program since January 6th of 2021. In that vein, I would be remiss to not discuss the January 6th attack this morning. I know many of you were present in the U.S. Capitol and experienced the events of that day firsthand. The FBI's investigation of the attack on the Capitol began immediately and continues to this day. It goes without saying that the threat posed by domestic violent extremists is persistent and evolving, but this does not mean we have forgotten about the threat from foreign terrorist organizations such as ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Today, the United States faces a complex threat landscape driven by a broad set of violent extremist ideologies. As you are aware, preventing all acts of terrorism is the FBI's number one priority. And the greatest terrorism threat facing the United States today remains that posed by lone actors or small cells who typically radicalize online and look to use easily accessible weapons to attack soft targets. This includes both homegrown violent extremists inspired primarily by foreign terrorist organizations, as well as domestic violent extremism. In describing the domestic terrorism threat landscape, we intentionally use words violent extremism because the underlying political or social positions and the advocacy of such beliefs, no matter how vile, are not in and of themselves prohibited by U.S. law. It is important to remember the FBI cannot and will not open an investigation based solely on First Amendment protected activity. In fact, it is our mission to protect the American people and defend the Constitution. Neither is more important than the other, but rather these aspects of our mission are dual and simultaneous. The FBI divides the domestic terrorism threat into five broad categories. Today, based on the topic of this hearing, I am confining my remarks to the two most prevalent categories racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism, and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremism. When evaluating the current domestic terrorism threat, we assess that racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists advocating for the superiority of the white race and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists, specifically militia violent extremists, present the most lethal threat. Racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists are most likely to conduct mass casualty attacks against civilians, and militia violent extremists typically target law enforcement and government personnel and facilities. In 2021, domestic violent extremists conducted four attacks which resulted in the deaths of 13 individuals. Many domestic violent extremists also plotted to conduct attacks due to personalized grievances, including anger at government responses to COVID-19, immigration policies, and perceived election fraud. Looking forward, we assess domestic violent extremist reactions to socio-political events and conditions will continue to drive the threat of violence in 2022. Additionally, as we head into 2022, we assess racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and anti-government or anti-authority violent extremists will continue to pose the most serious 
threats, and as such, the FBI has prioritized anti-government or anti-authority violent extremism to be commensurate with the threat posed by homegrown violent extremism, ISIS, and racially or ethnically motivated violent extremism. This prioritization ensures all FBI field offices are postured to comprehensively respond to and combat the threat posed by these individuals in 2022. We want to assure the committee and the American people that the FBI focuses all of its efforts against the threat of terrorism, both international and domestic. We apply resources and rigor to address the ever-evolving threats. As evidenced by the hundreds of arrests made by the Joint Terrorism Task Forces in your states and around the country in 2021. The FBI holds sacred the rights of individuals to peacefully exercise their First Amendment freedoms, but make no mistake when protected free speech turns into criminal threats or action, the FBI will actively pursue the individuals behind them. In the fight against domestic violent extremists, as with all of our other threats, the FBI is grateful for the support and assistance of all of our partners, including this committee. Thank you for inviting me today to be a part of this important discussion. Thank you, Ms. Sanborn. Uh, I think it's important if we're going to learn from these hearings and from life experience that we try to have an open mind. We, many of us personally uh, witnessed and were victimized by the events of January 6. But we need to take an honest look at what happened that day and who was guilty of wrongdoing. The most comprehensive look I've seen that has been published was by Professor Pape at the University of Chicago, and it's been widely uh, publicized and noted. He took a look at the actual people who were arrested for January 6th and asked why they were there and who they were. And he came up with some uh, startling information as far as I'm concerned. First, and this is not a surprise, the attack was unmistakably, he says, an act of political violence, not just an exercise in trespassing or vandalism. The overwhelming reason for action on January 6th, going after those who were actually arrested and taking a look at their testimony, the overwhelming reason was they believed they were following President Trump's orders. Second, a large majority of suspects in the Capitol had no connection to existing far-right militias, white nationalist gangs. One-tenth, only one out of ten, could be classified as supporters of these militia groups. Eighty-nine percent had no apparent affiliation. Third, the demographic profile of these suspected rioters is different from past right-wing extremism. Average age, 40. Two-thirds, 35 or older. 40% of those arrested are business owners or hold white-collar jobs. CEOs, shop owners, doctors, lawyers, IT specialists, only 9% are unemployed. Fourth, most of them did not come from deep red strongholds. They came from areas that were carried by Joe Biden in the election. And finally, he concluded, what's clear is that the Capitol riot revealed a new force in American politics, not merely a mix of right-wing organizations but a broader mass political movement that has violence at its core and draws strength even from places where Trump supporters are in the minority. So I want to ask each of you from the Department of Justice and FBI, as you are envisioning what needs to be done to keep America safe in the future, what do these conclusions tell you? Mr. Olson. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Chairman Durbin. If I, I would start, if I may, with your comments at the very beginning of this hearing. 
Um, what that tells me in hearing those statistics from the University of Chicago professor is that we must speak with one voice um, in condemning uh, violence as what, as what we saw on January 6th as unacceptable. You know, for our part at, at the Department of Justice um, and in partnership with the FBI and, and Ms. Sanborn and the agents within the FBI, our mission, our commitment is to investigate and prosecute all of these acts, um, any violence, uh, any unlawful acts. So, Mr. Olson, uh, regard to ideology. Mr. Olson, thank you very much for that. But the point I'm getting to is this. I'm not an expert in this area. I've read, and many members of the committee have read uh, enough to know how you investigate organizations and infiltrate them and try to break them down. It happened with the Ku Klux Klan. It's happened with others. But the point that is being made by the PAPE study is that if you just went to the organizations themselves, you will have missed the, the, the brunt of the attacks of the Capitol on January 6th. These people were not affiliated members of these organizations. By and large, Almost 90 percent of them had no connection whatsoever, and yet they engaged in violence that day, sometimes uh, with unprecedented uh, uh, opportunity they've never shown in their life before. I'm asking each of you, as you look forward to try to keep us safe, are you going beyond the traditional means of suspects and people involved in this activity? Maybe Ms. Olson, would you like to respond to that? Uh, to to Miss Sanborn, but let me let me just yeah. Hello, sir. Uh, thank you for the question. I think you highlight uh, a couple things why we focus so much on the violence, and uh, two things that I would pull out of your comments that I think are uh, congruent with themes that we're seeing and trends is a very personalized mobilization is often behind what pushes somebody. Uh, to go out and conduct whatever act they're about ready to undertake. And so that personalized nature obviously is very challenging, but to get ahead of that, one of the things that we have focused on and we just recently published jointly with NCTC and DHS is indicators of mobilization, right? We want to teach people to pay attention to human behavior and become alarmed and alerted when it looks like somebody's mobilizing. We have found that is very successful on the IT side and believe that uh, educating people on those mobilization indicators will help us stay ahead of the violent threats that are out there. So I would conclude by saying so I, I believe that these extremist organizations are still dangerous and keeping an eye on them and, and suppressing them is necessary but may not be sufficient. This analysis of the January 6th uh, insurrectionists and rioters tells us that the reach of this extremism is, goes far beyond these organizations. Senator Grassley. Mr. Olson, uh, your division has a very big job keeping track of both domestic and terrorism uh, and international terrorism. So I was surprised to see the Attorney General think that uh, your division should redirect time from those threats to policing matters of local school boards. I was even more surprised to learn that the FBI's counterterrorism division is tagging school board cases. Uh, involving the federal national security programs on local school board matters has a chilling effect on freedom of speech and freedom uh, petition your government, in this case, and their nation's parents going to the school board. Uh, the entire Republican side of this committee has asked Garland uh, to withdraw his uh, memo federalizing school board cases. 
uh, to date. We haven't received that happening. So, Mr. Olson, uh, Garland said that your division is going to be working on school board cases in, pre in a press release. We read that. Uh, that accompanied his memo. Uh, what is the uh, division doing with regard to local school boards? And for Ms. Sanborn, uh, is it true that the counterterrorism division is tracking school board cases? If uh, it is, will you stop that practice uh, that has a chilling effect on school board meetings? First of all, Mr. Olson. Thank you very much, Ranking Member Grassley. I, I can assure you uh, that nothing uh, is uh, deterring or interfering or uh, otherwise making it more difficult for us to focus on our core responsibilities uh, in the National Security Division of investigating and prosecuting international and domestic terrorism. This remains the top priority for our division. It remains a top priority for uh, the Department of Justice, and we remain committed to that priority. Um, as the Attorney General's memo indicated, uh, there has been an increase in violence and threats of violence uh, against uh, individuals who serve in, in positions of public trust, school board members, teachers, other public officials. Um, and this is a serious concern, it's a concern that I share. The National Security Division, for its part, is playing uh, a, an, an advisory role in supporting the work of the department. Um, making sure that uh, when there may be a case that would rise to the level of one where we have some role to play, that we're there to support uh, to support the rest of the department. But it's certainly not a particular focus for the National Security Division, um, nor do I have any anticipation that it, that it would be. Um, it, it is, I think, an important role, however, for the Justice Department as a whole, largely uh, run by the Criminal Division, the Civil Rights Division, and other components of the Justice Department. Ms. Sandburn, your response? Yes, sir, I would echo that this is not a particular focus for the counterterrorism division and, and nothing has changed in our authorities, our policies, or how we go about investing our cases. I would just add to the, the tagging question that you asked is, first of all, something would have to rise to be either an allegation of violating federal law or have already violated federal law for the FBI to be, even be involved in investigating that. And the tagging is simply an administrative process to be able, be able to better analyze trends, et cetera. But again, the, the key here is this has not changed our authorities and a, a violation of federal law would have to be at the heart here for us to be involved. Ms. Sandburn, you were the assistant director of the division during the 2020 riots. I understand that this was an extremely difficult time for the FBI. I've heard uh, it, uh, I heard it may have been the only time in history where the command posts of every FBI field office were activated at the same time. Uh, every day there were reports of multiple riots, more cases to be opened domestic terrorism agents dispatched to places like Portland uh, to help rein in the violence. My question, in June of this past year, our committee was briefed that the FBI had opened more than 500 domestic terrorism investigations as a result of the 2020 riots. Of those where the ideology could be identified, 75 percent were anarchist extremists. Anarchist extremism is the FBI term for Antifa. 
Uh, the FBI told us then that they were still trying to hold other subjects accountable for acts uh, during the summer riots. Has the number of domestic terrorism investigations opened as a result of the 2020 uh, riots grown or changed since June of that year? And my second question, I my think second. It, uh, my second question is, I think it's fair to say that the FBI was surprised by a, a lot of the riots that happened in 2020 and the Capitol uh, riot as well on January 6th. How's the FBI improving its visibility into improvements that it has previously not tracked well, like the anarchist extremists? Uh, I'll wait for your answer. Thank you, sir. I appreciate the opportunity to, to quickly talk about the investigations as it relates to uh, 2020 and the violence that we all saw around the peaceful protest. And it's hard to understand uh, the aggregate of that, so I appreciate the opportunity. We have uh, opened about slightly more than 800 cases, uh, so yes, more than when you were last briefed on that, and our arrests in those cases are just a little bit north of 250, so still making progress on those cases. Uh, to the second part of your question, I would say some of the things that we're asking ourselves to do better, not only as a result of 2020, um, but as a result of January 6th, is how do we collect better and more information, right? Pushing collection, more human sources, et cetera. Um, I think you heard me say previously, you've never met an analyst that didn't want more intel. And so we are definitely trying to do better in, in collecting and, and gathering information from sources. Sharing information quickly and as broadly as possible is another area uh, that we're continuing to try to improve. Thank you, Ms. Sanborn uh, and Senator Grassley. Senator Hirono. Federal criminal law defines domestic terrorism as, quote, violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences, such as those of a political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature, end quote. Based on that definition, when a mob of armed rioters use force in an attempt to overthrow the United States government, that is domestic terrorism. I'd like to ask both of you, is what happened on, on January 6th domestic terrorism? Mr. Olson, Ms. Sanborn? Thank you, uh, the Department of Justice and the FBI have been clear that the attacks, the events that occurred on January 6th are being investigated as an act of domestic terrorism. And you quoted from the federal code definition of domestic terrorism, which, if I may, you know, involves acts dangerous to human life that are a violation of criminal law and in part that are intended to influence the policy of a government by intimidation or coercion. So I think it's entirely appropriate that January 6th events are generally being investigated as acts of domestic terrorism. Having said that, it's important to add that in any particular case, it will depend on the actual facts and circumstances of that case, which of course are now ongoing in the investigation and prosecution stages. I would consider that in that definition, the term acts is very critical because we're not talking about peaceful protesting. There have to be actual acts uh, violent acts being committed. Isn't that right, Mr. Olson? Absolutely. The focus, and it's important, I appreciate being able to point this out as well, it's, it, it, the focus is on acts of violence or other acts that violate 
the criminal law, not peaceful protests, not assembling, not free speech, not any of the other types of activities that are protected under the Constitution and the First Amendment. Yeah, I think it's really important to focus on the fact that there have to be actual criminal acts occurring. This is not talking about a bunch of people touring the Capitol or people engaging in peaceful protests. I think that there is a tendency to mix those up, and that is why Ms. Sanborn said that we have to be careful about not interfering with one's First Amendment rights. That is not what was happening to a great extent on January 6th. So now that you've acknowledged, Mr. Olson, that these were, what we were witnessing, domestic tourism on January 6th, I'd like to understand the Department's approach to prosecuting the perpetrators. And my understanding is that prosecutors have not been pushing for the sentencing enhancements available for acts of domestic tourism. Do the actions of January 6th insurrections qualify for terrorism sentencing enhancement? Mr. Olson. Senator, the Attorney General last week in a speech here at the Department of Justice talked about the scope and complexity of the January 6th investigation, talking about the more than 700 individuals who've been arrested, more than 325 individuals charged with felonies. Those cases are ongoing and pending. Each case will depend on the specific facts and circumstances of those cases. Excuse me. Mr. Olson, I am running out of time here. So, yes, I understand that it depends on the actual acts that an individual committed. But if that individual committed a crime, such as attacking a police officer, would that person be subject to enhanced sentencing? It could be, right? It just depends on the facts and circumstances of the case, Senator. And if it's applicable, would the Department pursue enhanced sentencing? It certainly is true that, as a general matter, the Department has pursued enhanced sentencing in terrorism cases over the past several years where it's appropriate. So as you can see, could I just ask one more question, Mr. Chairman? So as you proceed with all of the trials, and you've already, I think, engaged, had settlements with a number of the defendants, then could we see the potential for trials happening where there would be enhanced sentencing pursued by the Department? Again, it's possible depending on the facts of the case. I think the answer to that is yes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rono. Senator Graham. Thank you. Do you have the resources, the people, and money you need to protect the nation? Thank you, Senator. We do. From my vantage point in the National Security Division, we have resources to carry out our priority missions. Obviously, January 6th is a singular event that is stretching the resources of our office and the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which is handling that case. There are a number of people that have been detailed around the country to support that process. Do you need more money, any changes in the law to do your job? At this stage, I don't have any requests for more money or more authority, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. The Vice President equated January 6th with Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Do you agree with that? 
I, in my view, and if I may just begin by saying, with Senator Durbin and Ranking Member Grassley, it was a day that must have been horrific to be directly involved in or be victimized on Capitol Hill. And I do think it was a singular event. I'm reluctant to compare it to any prior events in our history because, from my vantage point, it was unique and singular. Yeah. Let's talk about the world in which we live in now that we have a very brief time to do so. The fall of Afghanistan, the takeover of Afghanistan by the Taliban, has that created additional national security threats to our homeland, Mr. Olson? I think, from my vantage point, international terrorism remains a priority. And if I may broaden my answer a bit just to say that we continue to be very concerned about – Well, here's my question. In Afghanistan, ISIS – Here's my question. The country is now in the hands of the Taliban. Are al-Qaeda elements present in Afghanistan? We do see – I would say that we continue to see – we do continue to have concerns about both ISIS and al-Qaeda. What capability do we have available to us to detect terrorism activity on the ground in Afghanistan after the collapse? Senator, I think it might be not appropriate for me to go into particular – Is it fair to say we've lost a lot of capability? I would be reluctant to characterize the level of our capability. What I would say is that it remains a priority. You can't tell this committee that a lot of the assets we had available to us have been lost because of the Taliban takeover? You can't say that? Again, I'm reluctant to characterize the level of our intelligence capabilities in Afghanistan. Have you been to the U.S. border, southern border? Not – well, two, three years ago I did go to the southern border. I would urge you to go back. A lot has changed in the last two or three years. How many people have come across the border, our southern border, from special interest countries in the last year? I don't have particular information. Possibly Ms. Sanborn does, but I don't have that. Ms. Sanborn, how many people have come across our southern border in the last year from special interest countries? Sir, I don't have that data. Have you been to the border? Not in a very long time, sir. Well, I appreciate both of your service, but it's been 3,000 to 4,000. We've had dozens of people on the terrorist watch list coming across the southern border. Thank you, Senator Graham. Senator Coons. So, Mr. Olson, if I might just first ask you, I was encouraged to hear your testimony about establishing a new unit that will combat domestic terrorism. As the leader of the department's mission to combat terrorism, whether foreign or domestic, espionage, cybercrime, other threats to our national security, would you agree that the violent assault on our capital on January 6th has undermined our standing abroad? I would certainly say, Senator, that what happened on January 6th has posed challenges in terms of our status as a democracy. If you look across the country, I've had that conversation with foreign leaders in the national security space. That said, I think how we've responded to it and how we address domestic terrorism, again, pursuing acts of violence without regard to ideology stands as an example to the rest of the world. So you'd agree that a failure to adequately respond to that assault with 
fair, thorough, appropriate criminal investigation and prosecution. If we fail to respond, that would further undermine our standing as a model of democracy and, and thereby continue to weaken our standing in the world. I think, I think the world is watching how we respond to this threat and, and, it will, and it can potentially affect our standing in the world. I would agree. Mrs. Sanborn, attacking police at the Capitol in order to prevent the certification of an election for an explicit political end pretty squarely fits within the definition of domestic violent extremism, doesn't it? Yes, sir. Thanks, Senator Kuhn. Senator Lee. Mr. Olson, I'd like to clarify, uh, has anyone been charged with the crime of insurrection following January 6th? I am not aware that anyone has been charged with that that particular offense, even if it is a, an offense. I, I just am not aware of that. And again, I, I don't. I, it would be inappropriate for me to speak with, about any particular investigation at this point. But I'm not aware of anyone being charged with that yeah. offense. Yeah, I, I'm not either. I've just heard it heard that word used several times today, and to, to my knowledge, nobody's been charged with that. They've been charged with other things, not that one. Um, on June 7th of 2021, I signed on to a letter with a bunch of my colleagues. Uh, the letter was led by Senator Johnson. And the purpose of the letter was to ask a number of questions regarding the prosecution of individuals alleged to have committed crimes in uh, connection with the 2020 riots and those alleged to have committed crimes on January 6th. Despite the best efforts of my staff to work with the Department of Justice to narrow the, the scope and prioritize certain questions. We didn't receive any answer until October 22nd, over four and a half months after we sent the letter. Now, ordinarily, you'd think that when you've got more than four and a half months to respond, that you'd submit a response that was at least good or, or thorough. But uh, the, to my great astonishment and dismay, the letter failed to answer a single question that we asked, not one. I mean, it, it was a statement of platitudes and, and uh, cited publicly available resources about general policies. There was not one answer to a single one of our questions. It's a little bit troubling uh, when you've got uh, uh, members of the United States Senate charged with an oversight responsibility over the Department of Justice to have a four-and-a-half-month delay followed by a complete refusal to engage. So I'd like to ask some questions based on that letter, and uh, uh, happy that I get the chance to do so here under oath, where I don't have to wait four-and-a-half months only to be given a non-responsive answer. So first, I'd like to know, did federal law enforcement utilize geolocation data from cell phones to track protesters associated with the unrest in the spring and summer of 2020? Senator, if that question is directed to me, I don't have any information about, about that question uh, that could be responsive. I'd be happy to receive the answer from either one of you. Ma'am, do you have any? Uh, sir, without going into specifics on a specific case, I would just say that we um, do often use geolocation data in the course of our investigations as a result of legal process that we would serve. No, I understand that you do. I, I'm asking whether you did so in connection with the riots that occurred in the spring and summer of 2020. And, and if so, how many times and for which locations and riots? And, and what about January 6th? I'd like to, to know the number of times and, and locations. 
Yes, sir. I don't have that in front of me, but happy to uh, take that back. Um, I wasn't aware of your questions until today, so I'm happy to take your question and try to see what we can do to be responsive. Okay. okay. Now, how many individuals who may have committed crimes associated with the riots uh, in the spring and summer of 2020 uh, were either arrested by law enforcement um, uh, uh, pre-dawn pre raids and with SWAT teams or had search warrants served on them through those means? Sir, I don't have the particular numbers of uh, arrests and or the specific uh, nature of the op plan that might have been around that in front of me. Okay. I, I, I'd also like to know how many who are alleged to have committed crimes or alleged to have been witnesses to uh, what happened on January 6th were uh, uh, people who had been uh, arrested or had warrants served on them uh, using pre-dawn raids and SWAT teams. Can you tell me at least an approximate, approximate number or whether it's a comparable number to those who had those executed, had those executed or arrested, arrested in, connection in connection with the spring and summer the riots of 2020? Sir, I don't have either of those in front of me, and I would I would just, as a, as a little preamble, would explain that the mechanics going behind time of day and, and when an arrest and how an arrest is done is very specific to each individual case and what potential threat they may or may not pose, but I don't have numbers or comparisons um, with me at this time. Okay. You, you have any way of telling me how many of these individuals who were arrested in connection with the spring and summer riots of 2020 were placed in solitary confinement? I don't have that, and I'm not exactly sure that the FBI would house that data, um, but I definitely don't have that, and I'm not sure we would have that. We could probably figure out how to direct you to the right organization for that. Mr. Olson, do you have any idea how many of these individuals were offered deferred resolution agreements? That is, the individuals arrested in connection with offenses during the spring and summer of 2020? I do not, Senator, have that specific information. Some of those cases, of course, are still ongoing um, out, of, out of that time period, um, as are the January 6th cases. I don't have any information about uh, how many have been, how many cases have been resolved uh, via plea offers or plea agreements versus going to trial. Thank you, Senator Lee. Senator Blumenthal. Would you join me in the view that social media platforms have failed, utterly failed, to do as much as they can and should do to stop groups and individuals that promote and propagate violence. Senator, I, will, I can begin and then obviously defer to, to my colleague, Ms. Sanborn. And if I may just make a couple of points. First, and I know you are fully aware of this, um, there's activity that is protected by the First Amendment, espousing ideology, hateful ideology, um, is protected by the First Amendment. Uh, generally speaking, and the department does not investigate uh, anyone for First Amendment protected activities, uh, when that is, is the sole basis for their actions. Um, the intelligence community, to your point, the intelligence community has uh, assessed that social media um, has increased the way that information is spread, the speed, the dissemination, the accessibility of violent extremist conduct, and it also content. Content and it also 
has facilitated the decentralization of that information among violent extremists and supporters. So social media can be identified as a source of some of the problem of the way this information is spread and how it can fuel violence. And I think that's the third point I would make is that's why it's very important that the national strategy that was issued earlier or last year is clear on this point that it's critical to address the information environment and that we need to work in the government with the private sector, with social media platforms to help ensure that proper steps are taken that this information is not as widely available. Let me ask you, because I've heard some law enforcement officials say that when these groups are deplatformed, sometimes they're harder to track. You have other means of tracking them. You don't need them to be on social media for you to track them, correct? Again, I would defer to Ms. Sanborn largely on this question, but I would say as a general proposition, that is correct. There are multiple ways to collect information on individuals who are involved in violent extremist activities. Do you have under investigation cases involving threatened violence against members of school boards, election workers? In other words, some of the targets, not here in the Capitol, but at the local and state level. Do you have under investigation those kinds of threats of violence? As a general matter, it would not be appropriate to talk about any particular case. Again, as a general matter, the National Security Division is not involved in any of those types of investigations. Why not? It might include threats of violence against school board members. Senator, the only reason where we might get involved, well, really it's twofold, where a particular threat might rise to the level of a national security threat, for example, if it's serious enough to rise to the level of domestic terrorism. I have not seen that. The other way in which we get involved, actually, is to ensure that threats of violence and violence that might be criminal are not improperly branded as domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism. Again, as I understand the whole point of the Attorney General's memo on school boards to protect both the First Amendment rights of people who are there to speak and participate in the political process, as well as the safety of public officials. Let me ask you finally, because my time has expired, why has the Department of Justice not sought enhanced penalties in the cases involving the January 6th insurrection based on the terrorism element here? Under the 1993 law, enhanced terrorism penalties and punishment can be sought. Why has the Department of Justice not used that statute that clearly applies to domestic as well as international terrorism? Senator, it is my understanding, again, I'm not going to talk about any particular investigation. Of course, that statute is available in the context of the investigations and prosecutions of the July 6th defendants, but each case just depends on the specific facts and circumstances of that case. And as the Attorney General described last week, that case is being built like all large Department of Justice investigations from the ground up. 
starting with those who are potentially at the lower end of culpability. So as a general matter, that's where we are in the investigation. And whether that terrorism enhancement might apply in any future case remains to be seen. Yeah, I'm not asking about individual cases, but as a general matter, none of these cases has involved any request for enhanced penalties based on its involving terrorism. And I would like to know the answer to that question. I'm out of time, but if you could respond in writing, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Blumenthal. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Olson, how many people have been charged with crimes of violence in connection with the events on January 6th? Senator, I'm not sure exactly how many have been charged with crimes of violence. I know that there are many. How many have been charged with nonviolent crimes? I don't have the numbers of people charged, whether at the state or federal level. I know that there are. How many people are currently incarcerated concerning the events of January 6th? I don't know the number of people incarcerated. Again, I know that I do have. Okay, let me ask you that. Look, we've limited time, so I don't want you to filibuster. You either know the answer or you don't. How many people have been placed in solitary confinement concerning the events of January 6th? I don't have any information about that, Senator. Let me ask you, during 2020, Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots all across the country, there were over 700 police officers injured by Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots. How many people have been charged with crimes of violence concerning those riots all across the country? I don't have information on how many. I would say, you know, hundreds of people have been charged. You would say, but you don't know. I want to turn to the FBI. How many FBI agents or confidential informants actively participated in the events of January 6th? Sir, I'm sure you can appreciate that I can't go into the specifics of sources and methods. Did any FBI agents or confidential informants actively participate in the events of January 6th? Yes or no? Sir, I can't answer that. Did any FBI agents or confidential informants commit crimes of violence on January 6th? I can't answer that, sir. Did any FBI agents or FBI informants actively encourage and incite crimes of violence on January 6th? Sir, I can't answer that. Ms. Sadburn, who is Ray Epps? I'm aware of the individual, sir. I don't have the specific background to him. Well, there are a lot of people who are understandably very concerned about Mr. Epps. On the night of January 5th, 2021, Epps wandered around the crowd that had gathered, and there's video out there of him chanting, tomorrow we need to get into the Capitol, into the Capitol. This was strange behavior, so strange that the crowd began chanting, fed, 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 fed. Ms. Sadburn, was Ray Epps a fed? Sir, I cannot answer that question. Did federal agents or those in service of federal agent actively encourage violent and criminal conduct on January 6th? Not to my knowledge, sir. Senator Leahy? Mr. Olson, if Congress fails to enact these funding increases for fiscal year 2022, how would it impact the department's 
ability to comprehensively respond to the domestic terrorism threats we face. Thank you, Senator Lake. I know that the Department of Justice and the administration has submitted a budget request asking for additional resources. And obviously, those resources are being requested because we view those as essential to being able to carry out our mission. So I would just refer you to the submissions from the Justice Department and the President on our budget requests in connection with those appropriations. And thank you. And Ms. Sanborn, it's good to see you again. But can you answer the same question I asked Mr. Olson about these funding increases from the FBI's perspective? Yes, sir. I am aware that we have requested a budget enhancement. Right now, we use the resources we have and cover down with what we have. But as alluded to by Mr. Olson, we have requested an enhancement specifically for domestic violence extremism. Mr. Olson and Ms. Sanborn, how does misleading political rhetoric and misinformation impact the thinking and actions of domestic violence extremists? Does it impact recruitment and mobilization by these activists? That's my final question. I'll give a brief answer and defer to Ms. Sanborn. There's no doubt that misinformation, disinformation, false narratives, as the intelligence community has assessed, are available online to violent extremists. Again, whether that's domestic violent extremists or those who may be influenced by international terrorist groups. And the internet and the availability of social media can be an accelerant to an individual's movement, as you mentioned, Senator, from simply being susceptible to those messages to being further radicalized and eventually to being mobilized to violence. And we've seen this same pattern occur in both the international terrorism context when it comes to ISIS and their propaganda, as we've seen on the domestic violent extremist side with regard to domestic political and social influences. So it's a significant problem. Ms. Sanborn, push that. Yes, sir, I would agree with that. Bottom line is violent extremist material on the internet reaches those vulnerable to recruitment. And so we're concerned about that. And on the quote unquote misinformation, we know our adversaries would do whatever they could to include misinformation to sow discord. Thanks, Senator Lee. Senator Cotton. Mr. Olson, on January 6, 2021, did the Department of Justice or FBI have any plainclothes officers among the crowd at the Capitol? Senator, I'm not aware of whether or not there were plainclothes officers among the crowd at the Capitol on January 6. Did any plainclothes officers enter the Capitol on January 6? I don't know the answer to that, Senator. Mr. Olson, I got to say your answers to many questions today are disappointing because they boil down to essentially I don't know. Did you prepare for this hearing? Did you know this hearing was happening before this morning? The direct answer, yes, I prepared extensively, Senator. Many of the questions are about specific facts that I don't have. Well, I mean, let me. I think one of the most important points that I would emphasize is, you know, again, as a general matter, it's not appropriate to comment on ongoing investigation. On the last question you asked, Senator, over 700 people have been charged in connection with January 6. 
about 325 have been charged with serious felonies in connection with the attacks on — Ten minutes ago, Senator Cruz asked you this series of questions, and you didn't have the answer. You didn't have the answer for how many people have been charged with violent offenses or nonviolent offenses and so on and so forth. Have you been given the answer in the last ten minutes? I'm sorry if I misunderstood, Senator, but I believe that Senator Cruz was asking me about other events, not the January 6th event. Senator Whitehouse, are you online? I am. Mr. Olson, as a legal matter, are violent acts and threats of violence protected by the First Amendment? Senator, no. Violent acts and threats of violence are not protected. Are they crimes, indeed sometimes federal crimes? They can be both state and federal crimes, Senator, yes. And if violence or threats of violence occur at a school board meeting, is there any difference there from other locations? Not from the perspective of whether or not those acts would be considered crimes under either state or federal law. It's the conduct itself, not the location of the conduct, that determines the offense, correct? That's correct. As a general matter, that's right. Ms. Sanborn, how long has the FBI coordinated with local communities regarding terrorism threats? Sir, I don't have the specifics for you, but the JTTF, for example, was stood up in 1980, so talking with communities and our partners for years, yes, sir. And that includes domestic terrorism threats? Absolutely. As I said, JTTF was created out of a domestic terrorism threat issue that we were dealing with. And all 94 U.S. Attorney's offices were tasked with setting up a local group to gather situational awareness regarding terrorist threats, correct? Years ago. My understanding, yes. I defer to Mr. Olson to confirm whether I'm correct or not. Tell me what predication is required to open an investigation of a domestic organization as a domestic terrorist group? Sir, we do not open cases on organizations. We open cases on individuals. Obviously, we would build out if they were conspiring or coordinating with others as we went about the course of our investigation, but we do not open cases on domestic groups. So if you wanted to send a confidential informant or an undercover FBI agent into a domestic terrorist organization, you would not be able to proceed unless you had specific evidence giving you predication as to specific individuals in that organization. Correct. And I would add to it that the bottom line is we have to have an authorized purpose to collect the data we're seeking to collect, and that stems from being tied to allegations of a federal crime or interest in national security. And Mr. Olson, with respect to the January 6th assault, will the Department of Justice follow the evidence upstream 
to funders, organizers, and instigators not present at the Capitol assault if justified? Or put another way, does the Department of Justice have any policy or reticence not to follow the evidence regarding upstream funders, organizers, and investigators? Senator, as the Attorney General discussed last week in his speech, the Department will follow the evidence wherever it leads, and, and that's consistent with um, the direction that, that I have in my role as the head of the National Security Division. And it's not uncommon in looking at a um, organized or multi-defendant event for the Department to begin with prosecutions, as Attorney General Garland suggested, of low-level people, whether it's street dealers in a narcotics organization or rioters and trespassers in the January 6th assaults, correct? Correct. In fact, I began my career uh, as a federal prosecutor uh, here in, in Washington, D.C., and that is the standard approach that's taken in all manner of uh, large conspiracy cases. And it's customary to do that first in order to um, obtain further evidence against upstream organizers or kingpins, correct? Correct. Uh, and that work can be painstaking and requires um, a degree of patience and, and hard work to follow the evidence wherever it goes. The department is following that standard with respect to the January 6th investigation. That's correct. Thank you, Senator Whitehouse. At this point, Senator Holly is recognized. Um, Mr. Olson, let me start with you. How many personnel in, in your National Security Division are working on cases or other issues surrounding the events of January 6th? Senator, that, that investigation is being led by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, D.C. Um, there they have dozens of individuals, including people who have been prosecutors who have been detailed from around the country to support that extensive investigation. We have a number, uh, a handful of, of prosecutors in main justice who are working uh, to support and assist in that investigation. But but from your division, my question is how, how many are none? No, no. from my division, I, I, I know there are at least three or four who have been working, if not full-time, part-time uh, on that case. How many personnel in your division are working on issues pertaining to Attorney General Garland's memorandum of October 4th, 2021, that's entitled Partnership Among Federal, State, Local, Tribal, and Territorial Law Enforcement? to address threats against school administrators, board members, teachers, and staff. Senator, and, and with regard to that memo and, and that work, uh, we, the National Security Division uh, plays a, an informal advisory role. I, there's no one that's dedicated to that you know, on any sort of full-time or really even part-time basis. I think we're available to consult with um, if the facts warrant, you know, that level of consultation with the National Security Division. And what, what exactly are you, what have you done to date with regard to, this is the school board memo, just for those who are following along here. What is it that your division has done to date so far with regard to that memorandum and the department's effort here to track parents at school board meetings? With regard to the school board memo, which again, I understand is an effort to protect um, school board members, other public servants, teachers from acts of violence or threats of violence. Um, but I, from the perspective of the National Security Division, I don't think we've had any uh, particular role or any played any, done anything in, in particular with regard uh, to that effort. So you're not coordinating with local officials? 
again, I'm not aware, Senator, that the National Security Division has played any role in any matter up to this date. I've been in the role for two and a half months, but I've not heard of anyone in my division having any role to play there yet. Is it your view that parents speaking out at school board meetings can be or are domestic terrorists? Absolutely not. And my understanding of the Attorney General's memo on this is that it is not about people speaking out at school boards. It's not about people voicing their opinions, exercising their First Amendment rights. It's about protecting, whether it's teachers or, for that matter, law enforcement officers or other public officials from threats of violence, criminal acts, violence. My understanding of Senator Whitehouse's question was really just about the location of various federal crimes, not necessarily domestic terrorism, but just federal crimes is largely being beside the point when it comes to federal law enforcement. Are Department of Justice officials and prosecutors still drawing up lists of crimes for which parents can be prosecuted regarding their participation in school board meetings? I'm not aware that that's ever happened. Really? You're not aware that it's ever happened? Did you watch the Attorney General's testimony before this committee when he was here last? Are you familiar with that, with his testimony in that regard? Did you watch that hearing? I am generally familiar with the Attorney General's testimony. And again, my understanding of both his testimony and his direction for the Department of Justice is to take the necessary steps that we can take, whether it's enforcing federal law or working with state and local partners to protect individuals who both are serving in public service roles, such as school board members and teachers, and to protect First Amendment rights of people who attend or speak at school board or other public meetings. Thank you, Senator Hawley. Senator Booker, take it away. I want to start by talking about firearms on the day of January 6th. I'd like to offer you the opportunity, Ms. Sanborn, to update your prior testimony. Are you aware of approximately how many firearms were confiscated in connection to January 6th in total, or how many people we know now have had actual firearms? And can you describe the nature of the firearm charges that the Justice Department has filed so far? Sir, yes, I'll start and then I'll probably defer to Mr. Olson on, quote unquote, the charges. And I appreciate the opportunity. As I sit here today, and I think that's important because as we investigate facts change, I am aware of five individuals that had a charge related to a firearm, one of which was arrested by our state and local partners, not within the restricted area, however, on the day of January 6th. There was one other individual who was arrested by our state and local partners in the restricted area on the day of. As a result of our investigation, we uncovered after the fact that three others possibly had been in the restricted area with a firearm. So we had evidence suggesting that they came in the restricted area and had on their possession a weapon. So I am aware of all five of those and hope that helps clarify. And again, as we continue to follow the facts, some of that could change. Thank you. I don't know if Mr. Olson wants to add anything to that. Only again, Senator, I'm aware, obviously, of the information you cited about how those involved in the attack on the Capitol did bring other weapons in addition to the ones you're talking about in terms of firearms, other weapons, bats, poles, pepper spray and the like. And then just a general point, Senator, that one of the lessons we've learned from international terrorism is to take an all authorities approach. So 
when you look at the kinds of charges that may be brought, they may include firearms charge in a, in a domestic terrorism or domestic violence extremist case. We look at all of the avail available federal charges that would, would be supported by the evidence. And Mr. Olson, very quickly, uh, in your written testimony, uh, you said that we face these uh, obvious domestic violent extremists who espouse a range of ideologies. Some are motivated by racial animus uh, or ethnic animus, religious, uh, religiously so. I'm concerned about a dangerous subset of sheriffs who call themselves constitutional sheriffs. These are law enforcement officials who claim to be the ultimate arbiters of what the law is uh, in uh, their given country, uh, a given county, excuse me. And in their view, that power supersedes the, uh, that of other elected officials. Uh, uh, this is deeply alarming, uh, and it has uh, uh, white supremacist roots and clear anti-government uh, underpinnings. In fact, the founder of, of the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, who for a while was a board member of the far-right extremist group known as the Oath Keepers, called the federal government the greatest threat we face today. Uh, and so just really quickly, my time is expiring, what kind of threat do these individuals who call themselves constitutional sheriffs, many of whom are elected officials, really pose uh, to our system of government? And when looking at the threats from domestic violence extremists, does the Department of Justice see movements like the constitutional sheriffs as playing a key role in the radicalization of those who sympathize uh, with anti-governmental views? And, and Senator, my, I, am, I am familiar uh, with that group from public reporting. Um, I would say as a general matter, what we do know is that there has been, particularly over the last year, a significant rise uh, in the threat from anti-government, anti-authority, violent extremists. Again, focused on actions and violence, not on speech, not on ideology, but we have seen a rise in that type of domestic violent extremist over the, extremism over the past uh, a year. So it is an area that we are focused on along with our, our partners at the FBI. And, and a rise is a relative term. What kind of increase are we seeing? I, I don't, yes. I don't have specifics on numbers of cases, um, but it was, it was a marked increase uh, in my conversations with Ms. Sanborn in preparation for this hearing and, and in my time and the National Security Division, this has been something that's been reinforced, that this is a, a threat that's, that's been elevated over the past year. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I'd like to address this issue of school board activity. I believe that Mr. Olson was explicit, and I, I would invite him to restate it if necessary, that the ordinary appearance before a school board in a peaceful manner expressing your point of view is not a crime either by state or federal standards and that in many instances, if not all, it is protected speech. Is that your testimony, Mr. Olson? It is, Chairman, and if I, I don't know if I can be any clearer, but the Attorney General said that spirited debate about policy matters is protected by the Constitution. It is not the focus of this effort. This effort is focused on protecting our, our public servants from, from acts of violence and threats of violence. Once again, thank you to the witnesses, and this meeting of the Senate Judiciary Committee will stand adjourned.
Lawfare No Bull is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution and Goat Rodeo. You can support Lawfare's suite of podcasts by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash lawfare. That's www.patreon.com slash lawfare. You should rate and review Lawfare No Bull wherever you found us. And you should share us on all the social medias. And as always, thanks for listening.